Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Happy Monday. There's so much going on. We have breaking news. The Supreme Court uh, does not let Donald Trump block the uh, grand jury subpoena from New York of, of his tax records. So that investigation is going to go forward. The Dominion Voting Systems files a $1.3 billion lawsuit against my pillow guy, Mike Lindell. I actually have an anecdote I want to tell a little bit later. Um, Merrick Garland gets finally gets his Senate hearing as as attorney general. But I think that we have to start by marking this really grim milestone that sometime today, and maybe it's already happened, uh, we will cross the threshold of 500,000 Americans who have died. And I, I wrote in my newsletter this morning that I think sometimes, you know, maybe we live with it so long, we're, we're just not sufficiently staggered by the magnitude of it. A year ago, it was unimaginable. I remember when we were thinking that, you know, boy, it's not going to get to 50 or 60,000. And remember, a, a year ago, denial was our official policy. And, and here's a bit of a flashback from the, the other guy. Now, the virus that we're talking about having to do, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat. I think that's a problem that's going to go away. But when you have 15 people and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero, it's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. You have to be calm. It'll go away. It will go away. Just stay calm. It's going to go away. It's going to go away. It will go away. You know it. You know it is going away. Thank it's you. going to go away. Hopefully at the end of the month. And if not, it hopefully will be soon after that. I didn't say it. I said it's going away, and it is going away. You were saying things like, "I think it's a problem that's going to go away within we'll a couple right days." About. It, go, it will go away. It's going to go away. This is going to go away. It's going to go. It's going to leave. It's going to be gone. I feel about vaccines like I feel about tests. This is going to go away without a vaccine. It'll go away yeah, at some serious. point. It'll go away. You know, at some point, this stuff goes away, and it's going away. Our numbers are much lower now. I always say, even without it, it goes away. Okay, so I, I think you get the idea there. And there's uh, Donald Trump uh, didn't say that just once. He said it multiple times. Uh, that's a Washington Post audio. We should give them uh, credit, especially since our next guest is from the Washington Post, James Homan, who is uh, a new opinion columnist for the Washington Post. Good morning, James. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. Doing great. Good to be with you. Well, well, first of all, congratulations on your new position. You and I were talking about the fact that you have, uh, you, you know, for the last uh, gazillion years, uh, you were the the author editor of the Daily Two Hundred Two, a daily newsletter that required you to get up at what zero dark thirty every day to put out this newsletter. Yes, I I get up at two a.m. every day for five and a half years, and so it's it's uh, it's still adjusting to the normal sleep time. Wow. that is, So I, I told you, you kind of were one of the reasons why you kind of inspired me to start my own newsletter, The Bulwark. And now I'm wondering, what the hell was I thinking? I mean, every <laughs> single day. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, seriously, people, I mean, the, the, the having a take every single day is is kind of remarkable. I mean, it's it's hard. It's it, it is difficult, although I suppose with the flow of of uh, of news that we've experienced, it's something to do. But anyway, congratulations. But let's talk about this this milestone, five hundred thousand. I, I I do feel we're kind of numbed, and you know, I think here's one way of looking at it: more Americans have died from the COVID nineteen than on the battlefields of World War One, World War Two, and the Vietnam War combined. I mean, that's just stunning. It it's breathtaking, and it is. It's hard to. You know, people just there's so many ways you can think about it. You know, it, it's the size of Atlanta. You know, the, it's like the entire population of Atlanta being wiped out. It's 
you know, one in 250 Americans, but none of those really capture the, the rawness, you know, the, the other side of the bed that's empty, the other side of the dining room table that's not there, the grandpa and grandma uh, that, that you're never going to see again. And in a lot of cases, it's, uh, it's, it's multiple people in a family. Uh, and that's, so I think it's, it, it's, it's hard to grasp and it will be hard to grasp for a long time uh, just how bad this was. And it, and it didn't have to be this way, as you know, Charlie, obviously we, we have more deaths by far than any other country in the world. Uh, and that that's not something we would have expected a year ago. If you would have said half a million people are going to die in the U.S., you would have assumed that the numbers would be far worse uh, proportionally in places like uh, Russia and China. And, and to some degree, it does seem plausible that China and Russia are, are lying and covering up some of their death counts and we're not. Uh, but it, it is just staggering that this has uh, been such a terrible humiliating episode for the country so in in terms of of just that proportion of death i the, the number that that stuck in my mind is that we have 20 percent of the world's deaths from the coronavirus uh while having only four percent of the population so it, it is that out of whack which is really amazing when you think that we are an advanced industrial nation that that uh, before this happened we would have thought that we Americans were better able to handle this than almost anyone else. And yet here we, here we are. So I think you know, part of the problem is it's been going on for so long. And, and a lot of Americans got bored with this thing hundreds of thousands of lives ago, unfortunately. And yeah. we have been involved in a lot of denial, wish casting. We've had the tribal politics. So I think that you know, right now I, I sense that we're we're reluctant to be optimistic. There's kind of an outbreak of optimism. There's a lot of reasons to, to hope. Uh, we have these miracle vaccines out there. And yet, I, th I think that there's almost a, um, there's, there's almost a, a built-in bias, and including among media types, um, to say, you know, we are almost there. We're almost there. I, you, know, you know what I'm, I'm saying? It's like, when you get the, the vaccine, um, do you get your life back? And there's a reluctance to say you get your life back. But in some ways, that ought to be the message, shouldn't it? Well, it should. I mean, I think one of the takeaways from this whole ordeal is is just kind of the humbling nature of it. You know, I'm I'm a Christian. And so I kind of think in terms of, you know, that you, you know, I'm a God fearing person. And I think the last year has has just shown that man can't co conquer nature. Uh, you know, obviously there have been these, these miracle cures, essentially the, these vaccines are amazing. The timeline is incredible, but it's amazing how much we still don't know about the vaccines. And it's frankly amazing a year in how much we still don't know about the virus and how exactly it's working and why people with, you know, O positive blood tend to have less severe cases than people with other kinds of blood. And so I, I think it's kind of been a wake up call in, in some ways for how much we don't know and how much, you know, man's hubris uh, can can yeah. put us in jeopardy. No, that and, and that is, that is true. That's that's it's always important to be humble in the face of, of nature uh, and to be reminded of all of that. Um, in terms of the the vaccine, though, I do think that there has been a marketing problem because yes. they, they, they haven't sold it enough. I think there are too many people who are going. Well, you know, 95 percent is not 100 percent. That's really, really good. This is an amazing vaccine. And then this whole kind of notion that, well, you know, if you get the vaccine, you're still not going to be able to do any of these things. You had Anthony Fauci 
on CNN yesterday saying, you know, I'm not going to say that you can actually go and hug your family. So, look, I mean, James, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be out there. I, I'm going to get my second dose uh, a week from today. And once um, I am fully immune, I'm telling you there's going to be hugging. There's going to be going back to normal. Not not completely. I'm not going to do raves. I'm right. not going to do bit mass spreader events. But, you know, I, I am going to do things that I used to do pre-pandemic. My wife and I are making lists. We're going to go visit the grandkids. We're going to go to stores. We're going to be doing these things. I may actually get my hair cut. So I'm excited to go to baseball yeah. games. That's my I'm I, I'm very fantastic. <laughs> baseball to be back. And and I would love to get the vaccine today. And uh, I, I agree that there's definitely been a problem in selling it. Uh, and it is kind of to me, it seems crazy that people don't want to take the vaccine when we have the data that we do. Uh, and and I kind of understand the focus on these vaccine hesitant people. But I want the people who are willing to get the vaccine to get it as soon as possible. So let's just talk about where where we're at right now. Um, you I, you know, you're, you're preparing to be an opinion columnist We're we're making this transition into the Biden era. It, it strikes me this morning as I was making a list of things that I wanted to talk about with you. It, it's been very difficult to turn the page, though, from Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's be, because the the crazy is still so strong. Uh, you have the Republican Party still doubling down on Donald Trump. You have this uh, ongoing purge of anyone who will dare to question uh, the, the, the president. Uh, he's going to be uh, the former president. He's going to be appearing at CPAC and apparently stake his claim to be the heir apparent in 2024. This is a party that just can't quit him, despite the fact that he was defeated, twice impeached, and was involved in that extraordinary insurrection. And not even that is enough to shake the support. It really, I, I anticipated after the election that there would be sort of the, the Khrushchev speech on Stalin. Uh, yeah. That moment would come. And, and I am, you know, I, I guess, you know, when you, if you look at it in one way, Biden one by seven million votes. If you look at it in another way, which is, you know, you swing the 20,000 votes in Wisconsin and the, you know, 10 to 15,000 votes yeah. in Arizona, you know, the, the election was actually pretty close. Um, the, uh, but it, it, it's clear now that that's not going to happen. Uh, and it does feel like the, the tension is between sort of Trump light and all in on Trump. And yeah, and it's Trump, Trumpy versus Trumpier. Right. And you see that you see this in one primary election. Uh, Tim Miller had a great piece over the weekend where he looks at what's going on in Ohio. And it's like if you if you think this party is prepared to move on, forget it, because there there are there are no anti-Trump candidates out there on these primary ballots, with the exception, of course, Lisa Murkowski. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, it is it's going to be. In some ways, that's an opportunity for Democrats, uh, you know, in a, in a place like Ohio, that's a race that Republicans should definitely win, especially with the, you know, the, an incumbent Democratic president and his first midterm. Uh, but if if there is a scenario where a kind of if, if it becomes like the 2010 Tea Party primaries, uh, that creates an opening for for Democrats to win races that they have really no business winning. And that is why it, it is incumbent upon Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy on the House side uh, to to rein in the Trumpiest elements because it will make it harder for them to take back the majority in either chamber. 
You know that reference to twenty ten is, is is so interesting. The the the, the Tea Party primaries. And by the way, that was a whole decade ago. <laughs> when you think about, it. it's like for for people who don't get the references there, this was when uh, the Republicans lost a number of unlosable seats because they nominated crazy people or people who were completely unelectable. You had people like Christine O'Donnell, I am not a witch. Sharon Engel, who was completely nutty. Uh, you had people who were saying silly things about rapes, and you lost, you know, arguably three Senate seats right there because of those nominees. And I think that there was kind of a pullback from that, like we can't go crazy anymore. But that was sort of temporary, wasn't it? It was, it was sort of like it was sort of like they they kicked the hard stuff for a while, and now they're back. And it's funny because in 2014, Republican leaders uh, weighed into a bunch of primaries to make sure that the serious electable people would win. And and they really did run a victory lap after the, the Republicans won control of the Senate in 2014. And they felt like the establishment was back. You know, we can talk about using that term or not. And and it really is amazing that then, you know, a year later, Donald Trump comes in and, and you know, is, is a bull in a china shop. And and, it, and now they're back on the, the juice. Well, they're back on the juice and the juice is just spreading. I mean, I, I know this has now become almost an old story, but the, the crazification at the local state level of Republican parties um, dwarfs anything you see at the national level. I mean, yeah, you got your, you got your Marjorie Taylor Greens and your Lauren Boebers, et cetera, in, in Congress. But you go from one state party to another and it's like, what is going on out there? I mean, it, it, it is it is it's like something in the water. And I, one story after another, I was reading Jim Swift's newsletter from Friday night about the lieutenant governor in North Carolina, uh, Republican. I mean, this guy is out there with some of the most bizarre anti-Semitic comments you can imagine that the Republican leading candidate for governor, I mean, is just woof, uh, Arizona, Oregon. I mean, wherever you look, these state level uh, parties have really there. It, it's almost like they're it's not just that they're Trumpy. It's like they've they've embraced something what, what what's the next step beyond trumpy right and it's you know, it, it, I mean, right, it's obviously it, it, it is it, it kind of he's trump created a permission structure for yeah people to be crazy and <laughs> and and that it's hard to see how that gets unwound except with electoral defeat i mean i do think if if in 2022 republicans fail to win back the house of the senate both of which in in normal historic times should be pretty easy uh i do think that might then lead to some reckoning going into the the 2024 primaries uh but frankly anything could happen but you could see trump being the nominee again in 2024 but that's not out of the question at all and uh and and you do have the you mentioned sharon engel in the context of 2010 she's one of the the people who's you know as as nutty as ever and doing a lot of nutty stuff in the nevada gop Oh yeah, and you get and you get Kelly Ward is kind of a you know Sharon Angle two two point So let me tell you just a Wisconsin story that is just like blowing my mind here, um, and it, it it seems particularly timely, especially since Dominion, uh, the voting machine company, has just filed this lawsuit against uh, my pillow guy for that video, which is, I mean, to say that that video is wacky and bizarre is is understating the case. So in Wisconsin, the beating heart of the Republican Party up until recently, maybe he still is, is crucial Waukesha County right. in, in, the, in the Milwaukee suburbs. I mean, that, that's, that, that's, the, that's been the story. I think people know about Waukesha County. I mean, it's been this massive vote engine for Republicans. And generally, if you're running statewide, you want to get Waukesha County Republicans on your side in a primary. They have become increasingly, and I want to say 
and I'm kind of working on this, the, you know, post Trumpy, it's sort of like they've been hooked on the crack and now they've moved on to fentanyl or something. <laughs> fentanyl. I mean, it's just something I just, um, so here's the story from, from Jim Wigderson of right Wisconsin over the weekend. The Waukesha County Republican Party, once the proud engine that drove the state Republican Party, pandered again to its wacko wing on Friday. The party officially sponsored a showing of the My Pillow Guys movie. Absolute proof. This is his version of what happened, you know, when when Trump lost the election. You know, the, the movie, you know, talks about the algorithmic error. But they actually they actually had an, an official event. The Republican Party of Waukesha had a movie night. They had 80 people that show up um, to watch my pillow guys movie. And the, apparently the people walked down saying, yes, absolutely. Some terrible things were happening. And this is a group of people that at least in, in my imagination, I thought were rational human beings five minutes ago, not five minutes ago, mm-hmm. but five, five, five years ago. Five years ago. And so, you know, we, we keep focusing on Trump or not Trump. But what happens when an entire political party loses its freaking mind? Well, we need a we need to we need a strong two party system. And and it is I mean, we the party is in the thralls of Trumpism and it is an addiction and it certainly is not conservatism. Uh, and and I and, and. You know, the country is going to be in a precarious place. The republic will be in a precarious place until uh, the, the party can break that fever and you know, leaders of goodwill. That's why, you know, over the weekend, Steve Scalise saying, you know, refusing to acknowledge that, uh, that, that Joe Biden is the rightful winner of the election. When, when leaders are sowing that kind of doubt, uh, it, is, it is so dangerous because the majority of Republicans in polls, including polls that were released over the weekend, continue to believe that, that Biden is not a legitimate president. And that is, it, it, it is, that is bad <laughs> because it's going to make right. it really hard to, to, to do anything. Well, yeah, since you mentioned Steve Scalise, this is Steve Scalise, who is on ABC with Jonathan Carl, who's trying to get him to answer basic questions about uh, Donald Trump's responsibility for the insurrection, which he refuses to do, and uh, dances around the questions of the legitimacy of the election. This is Steve Scalise from yesterday morning. But uh, but wait a minute. I mean, he, he hasn't taken responsibility. You heard Kevin McCarthy say, I mean, do you agree with what Kevin McCarthy said there, that the president must take responsibility, that the facts demand that he take responsibility for what happened on January 6th? Well, first of all, I wrote a Wall Street Journal editorial about uh, where I think the responsibility lays for January 6th, and surely there's a lot of blame to go around, but at the end of the day, the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, it was a disgrace. Uh, and they need to be held accountable. And in fact, over 180 have already been arrested. And I, I know the FBI is working to root out every person who broke into the Capitol, who attacked police. Uh, there's no I mean, that's that's that. obvious. I'm, I'm asking about Donald Trump's role in this. You heard, again, Kevin McCarthy. Do you agree with what he said? That he bears responsibility for what happened? Yeah. For what happened well, again, you can go back... You can go back and look at the impeachment trial, the the second impeachment trial. It seems like all they've done since the day he walked into office was try to impeach him. But again, when you look at that trial, they ran a clip of pretty much every United States senator who voted to impeach President Trump, who talked about uh, things like go and fight like hell and other things like that. So, so you're saying he doesn't day, bear responsibility. When you you're saying look he at doesn't. President, when you look, look, President Trump has denounced what happened. Uh, and, and I think everybody should have been unequivocal in their denouncing of what happened, uh, not only on January 6th, but during the summer when they were burning down cities, shooting cops, beating people in the streets. Uh, you, you saw so, 
the left announcing January 6th, as we did, they didn't announce what happened during the summer. So let's be across the board and saying anybody who resorts to violence to settle political disputes, there's no place okay. for that in America. And it should be disputed unequivocally. Well, that's that's Olympic level. What about isn't it, James? <laughs> it really is. And it's it's, um, you know, the House Republican conference is much Trumpier than the Senate Republican conference. And that is why you have to think about incentives. And, you know, Steve Scalise wants to be speaker someday. And uh, and and he is playing to where the conference is. That's not an outlier. You know, that's not a gaffe. That's Scalise, uh, a savvy politician, making a calculation that that's the position he has to stake out to maintain his his role as number two. Well, that's right. These are the litmus tests, right? The litmus test is you have to drop the insurrection into the memory hole and you have to uh, continue to refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of the of the election. And 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 that's it's this is the reason we keep talking about Donald Trump, because yeah. we have to. Uh, you know, we can't put this in the memory hole. Uh, it, it is this this defining moment. Obviously, the 75 days between the election and the inauguration posed this significant stress test uh, for the democracy. And I think one of the things that the second impeachment trial did show was how much kind of closer we came to real peril than we even realized yeah. at the time. And so it's it's hard because I would love to not talk about Donald Trump anymore. Um, but the, the Republicans, the, the party can't move on. Uh, and, and until there's a recognition that Biden did win the election and that Trump did play a role in inciting the, the insurrection, uh, the, the country's not going to be able to heal. Well, also, you know, we should mention, you know, Steve Scalise has a particular perspective on this because he was shot and very badly wounded early in uh, in in the, in the Trump presidency by somebody from the left who was uh, perhaps who was deranged by by over the top political rhetoric so you would think that he would deal with this with a special sensitivity i mean it's one thing for somebody else to go through with a boilerplate whataboutism but you would think that Steve Scalise would be in a unique position to say folks we have to uh, dial this down. We have to step back from this. This cannot continue. This is dangerous. This is deadly. It's deadly when it comes from, you know, blogger. It's deadly when it comes from a president of the United States. But, you know, the hackification of the party is uh, is truly is, is truly remarkable. OK, so um, where do we go with this, though? Because I I I, I know that there's the the temptation to move on, but it wasn't that long ago. I mean, this right. is this is this is part of the the time warp we live in. Joe Biden was inaugurated just a month ago. The uh, the attack on the Capitol was less than two months ago. We're getting more and more in, in, you know information from the the criminal investigations, suggesting uh, conspiracies involving uh, some of these militia groups, the involvement of Roger Stone, who was financing all of this. Where do you see this going? Well, I'm I'm fascinated to watch these trials play out, and and especially any connection to Alex Jones and Roger Stone. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I, it was with that McConnell speech, the the Mitch McConnell speech after he voted to acquit. You know, in which he said Donald Trump's not off the hook yet, and he put the emphasis on yet, and and emphasized that he could face criminal or civil uh, penalties. Uh, you know that. It will be fascinating to see what plays out in Fulton County in Georgia, where they're continuing to investigate 
Trump pushing the Republican Secretary of State to find the votes that he needed. Uh, and and I do think things will emerge at trial uh, that that highlight the role that some of the groups tied closely to Trump played uh, in, in everything that happened on January 6th. You know, the original permit didn't call for going to the Capitol, for a march to the Capitol. There's a lot of things that I think could end up getting sort of fleshed out in litigation. And I do think uh, you will see uh, you will see a lot of these defendants using sort of the Trump defense. And it will be fascinating to see how that plays out. In, in no, it will be. So I, I think it's kind of interesting this morning watching Merrick Garland's uh, confirmation hearing to realize that Merrick Garland has been, you know, such a the name has been, you know, to be, you know, has been a name to conjure with for years and years and years. And this is the first time I've ever heard him speak. Right. So um, but but his remarks and I, I didn't hear them live, um, but uh, the the, uh, the the pre-written remarks would suggest that that he's really laying down a marker about an independent Justice Department, but also how aggressive um, he is going to be in investing the investigating these white supremacist, white nationalist militia groups. What a priority that's going to be! It's interesting that on you know on day one he's signaling that uh, the Justice Department is going to war with many of these seditious organizations. Yeah, and and he I think he has a mandate to do that. Uh, and and I, I do think he will be an independent attorney general, and I, I do take the White House at their word that they're not going to get involved in in a lot of these decisions that that Trump did. Uh, and and I think that you know that he will have. A, it's going to be ironic to watch a bunch of the the senators vote to confirm him as as AG who supported the blockade. Chuck Grassley made a joke actually that was funny. Uh, that said, this is the first time you've appeared before the committee since you were confirmed as a judge, and I had something to do with that. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, I, and I, I think there is going to be a whole of government response. I don't think it'll just be DOJ. I think that there will um, th- there will be we'll be seeing a lot from DHS as well on uh, on cracking down on domestic violent extremism. Okay, so we don't know what a big deal, uh, how big a deal it's going to be. But again, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the Supreme Court has again rejected Trump's bid to shield uh, his tax returns and other financial records from the Manhattan prosecution, the Manhattan uh, prosecutors and their grand jury. So that investigation is going forward. We might as well just sort of leave that aside because that's certainly uh, that is certainly out there. So just uh, sw- switching the uh, switching the, um, the the focus just a little bit. I'm always interested um, in this in the question of uh, how long do, how do people survive scandals and what is our attention span? So the context here is Ted Cruz. Does Ted Cruz come back from the Cancun thing? Yes, he does. He, okay, he and, how? and he will bluster through it. And you know, it was actually striking. You know, not to criticize the media. <laughs> But uh, the way that, you know, I saw the, the opening montage on, on CBS's Face the Nation yesterday, and they were showing the pictures of Ted Cruz putting water in people's trunks. And, you know, they, like, yeah. I, I do think that it, it, in this day and age, especially if you have no shame, uh, it really, it, you really can move through. I mean, you look at some, someone like Donald Trump and, that you know they used to call Ronald Reagan the Teflon president, but that you know, Donald Trump gave that a whole new meaning. I don't know if there's a material that's more Teflon-y than Teflon. 
Yeah, but uh, Cruz is not Teflon. Cruz but, but is like the guy yes. that everybody likes to hate, right? So you hated him before, and then it was really fun hating him again next week. Yeah, and, week, and there's yeah. something to that, you know, the 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 Lindsey Graham quote that if if Ted Cruz was killed and the trial was in the Senate, he would, <laughs> you know, they, who the murderer would be acquitted. Um, yeah, yeah, and Ted Cruz, I do think like Ted Cruz has unique baggage that's going to be very hard for him to. I think it'll be very hard for him to be the Republican nominee in 2024. And I think he has, I don't think he has a real base, uh, but he, as, as if, you know, he's not up for reelection until November, 2024. And I assume he said publicly that he wants to run again for president. He may not end up doing that, uh, but he will continue to be a, a potent force and he will, you know, he'll, he'll be, because partly he's willing to engage uh, in, in when a lot of Republicans are quiet and just trying to keep their heads down. He's happy to be that warrior. I mean, it is, it, it was wild to watch him sitting in the, uh, you know, in the room with Trump's lawyers during the trial. And you could see him at a laptop pounding out, you know, s stuff for yeah. them to say <laughs> during recess breaks when the door was open. Uh, and, you know, the, the fact that Cruz batted cleanup for Trump uh, after everything that Trump said and did about him and his family and everything else, says a lot about his character. Uh, so I, I, I think that this may be one of those things that does stick with Cruz, but Cruz is going to continue to be a, a pretty significant figure uh, on the right, especially, but in, in our national politics for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, well, I, th I think that's probably true, although he, he might want to keep his head down and not talk about his daughters for a little while. <laughs> uh, so it, it looks like the Biden administration is going to suffer its first big defeat um, with the nomination of Nira Tandon, yeah, uh, to be uh, the director of the uh, of OMB, the Office of uh, Management and Budget. She had always been the most controversial of the opponents. I mean, I personally like her, but um, she's she had a Twitter account and um, like a lot of people with Twitter accounts, managed to flame a lot of people, piss off a lot of people. Uh, so she lost Joe Manchin's vote the other day, this morning, uh, Susan Collins. And I guess uh, in the last few minutes, Mitt Romney came out against her. So that would certainly suggest that uh, that nomination is in, if it's not going down, it's in really serious trouble. Yeah. And if once it, it's very hard to see where they would get the 50th vote uh, now with those people, you know, someone like Rob Portman, who was the OMB director uh, is the kind of person who you might in an ordinary time expect you know he's retiring he uh you know he was the he had the job but he's been one of the kind of he's been whipping votes against her in the republican conference and and it sort of has worked and there is a there is a some pressure from the left uh you know Nira's not a, a bernie person uh but yeah. kind of the the she ran a liberal think tank that there could be a, a recess appointment uh you know, at, potentially after the COVID relief bill passes, there's some talk that that Biden could use a recess appointment to put her in. Uh, but it's it's very hard to see her getting confirmed. Uh, it's hard to see which Republican would do that. It is kind of and I'm sorry to use the word ironic since irony was killed a long time ago that that it appears that her uh, mean tweets are what is going to sink her um, when some of these same senators voted for, say, Rick Grinnell um, right. put, put up with Donald Trump. Uh, in, if mean tweets was a disqualification um, that a lot of Republicans have a lot of explaining to do, that's number one. Number two, the, the OMB position is a little bit different than other cabinet positions because it's really part of the executive office, isn't it? I mean, if there's any position 
where you would normally think the senators would say, hey, let's we may not like this person, but we should defer to the, you know, the president should have his own people. Um, this is not an independent agency. It's really almost like a quasi member of the staff. It or is. Would give it, yeah. So yeah, it's part it, of the I mean, they're literally her office is in the White House complex. It's yeah. It, it, uh, it is historically senators in both parties have shown more deference the closer you are to the president uh yeah. in kind of a staff job you know you you would be more you know skeptical of a secretary of state or you know someone who was sort of or a secretary of defense right. or an attorney general uh and and i think that is part of what's changing to your point about mean tweets couldn't agree more uh that you know it is funny in this day of social media uh there's always been kind of conversations about well when everyone has facebook accounts does that mean that like it won't be scandalous anymore when this kind of stuff comes up in in confirmation hearings and i think that it it this shows that it will be you know and that, that in this kind of like the politics of personal destruction will continue in the digital age if not get worse well also that that people don't have any problem saying yeah we, we, i i don't pay any attention to donald trump's tweets oh don't look at his tweets look at what he does and to have those same people turn around and say no we're going to judge you based on your tweets so right. That's not going to. OK, so I want to just go back because I, I, I something else I've been thinking about over the weekend. And th this goes back to our original topic about uh, the coronavirus and looking back on the last year. One of the really remarkable things that has happened in the last, I don't know, two, three weeks has been the the fall from grace of Andrew Cuomo, uh, the governor of New York, who for months and months and months was this sort of Democratic superstar. He was the anti-Trump. And all the people who were disgusted by Trump's horrible uh, handling of the coronavirus were embracing Andrew Trump. I mean, and Andrew Cuomo. And they were, uh, we, you know, the cable stations ran his his press conferences live. He wrote a book about what a great job he did. And now we're finding out that the guy's handling of it is is I and I and, and I use this word advisedly is scandalous. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way they they covered up. You know, a huge number of deaths at nursing homes, the way that he fudged the numbers, the way that he ignored the scientists, the way that he bullied others. And it does it does strike me, though, that this is this is you look back on, you know, think about how we didn't see that or, uh, you know, how he was lionized at a time when he was actually screwing things up royally. Or am I overstating it? No, you're not overstating it at all. I've always been baffled. Uh, by the the Cuomo uh, treatment, uh, especially last spring, uh, you know this is a guy whose whole tenure as governor has been marred by scandal. Frankly, you know the yeah. uh, pre Barraro when he was the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney was investigating the the whole Moreland Commission. Uh, you know Cuomo has a long history of behaving in in ethically dubious ways, uh, and and so you know I I've always thought he was the most overrated governor. I think part of it. Charlie is is kind of live by the New York media market, die by the New York media market. Right. And I think some of it is is the same phenomenon, frankly, that we saw with Chris Christie, where Chris Christie for years was was, you know, way more elevated than he should have been. New Jersey's not even that significant or important a state. Uh, but it's because he was right there and a lot of the the big, especially TV channels, are headquartered in New York. And so, you know, Christie got tons of plaudits, and then we saw with the Bridgegate stuff, that's who he actually is. Similarly, we're now seeing with the nursing home scandal and, and other scandals, uh, you know, that Cuomo has always been a bully and is not actually particularly competent. And 
uh, and has, has long been overrated. So I think that there is this tendency of the kind of the television media, especially to elevate people from the New York media market who are not actually that good. Well, it's also an, uh, just a reminder of the danger of, of a hyper-partisan lens, um, yeah. because I, th I think that there was, and, and, I, and I say this is obvious, somebody was never Trump, still am never Trump, but uh, the the willingness to embrace anyone who was not Trump or anti-Trump and to overlook their uh, their their flaws. I mean, you, you, you think about the media and Michael um, Avenatti. Yeah. You think, which is not, the, of course, the same thing as being the governor of New York. No, um, but it was, you know, but it was other, embarrassing the way that he got, Avenatti yeah. got right it is embarrassing i mean omarosa i mean you can make a long list of of this sort of thing and, and michael cohen know, well yes exactly and that suddenly the, and there were people who figured that they could just you know wash themselves in the blood of anti-trumpism and really were not that much different than donald trump uh, but but you know this is part of the lens that you know if you're if you were was were trump you got the full legitimate scrutiny. And when I say, I mean, legitimate scrutiny, I don't think he was treated unfairly. I think he got exactly, you know, the, the kind of, uh, the, the kind of attention and the, the kind of accountability that he should have had from the media and from critics, but that wasn't always the case. And I think that that's part of the problem of our side, your side. I mean, I think, for example, that Ron DeSantis is, uh, is a thug. And and I think that, um, you know, he needs, you know, he needs to be dragged as, as well. But, you know, in what world is he the worst guy and Andrew Cuomo is a hero? Right. And I'm not defending DeSantis. I'm just right. saying if you have a standard, apply it to everybody. You I agree. Well, then that was, you you know, the, the what about is, um, you know, the, uh, I agree. You can't praise DeSantis and criticize him. Cuomo and vice versa. Right. And, uh, so, and some of it also, frankly, is like, I mean, the book Cuomo writing the book was, a, was laughably ridiculous at the time, uh, you know, as the pandemic is still going on. And, and some of it is that, you know, some leaders will look better with time. Uh, you know, some of the leaders who, who pushed to reopen schools and were dragged for it, uh, frankly, have been validated. Uh, and, you know, and, and so it will be, interesting you know when when the pandemic is sort of over to your point too about cruz going to cancun like how much does how what will people remember uh about their various governors and the way they responded to covid uh you know christy Nome obviously refused to put in place a statewide mask mandate you know she's is is that gonna hurt her at all in in 2024 when she tries to run for the nomination or in a general election you know, this raises a larger question, and, and, and maybe this is going to be too 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 big a leap here. But uh, I, I was thinking about it. I was uh, over the weekend when I was thinking about the uh, Rush Limbaugh and about CPAC and a variety of other things. The way the the right has turned its shamelessness into a superpower, and the way it has really been wildly successful in creating this alternative media structure, but how ultimately self defeating it is because they talk to themselves all the time. Yeah, and, 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 and it's yeah. an echo chamber on the left too. But yes, the, I think the right is more echo chambery than ever, uh, in the sense that you know people obviously not people listening to this. this you're at this, but um, the I, I think it's a huge problem that it, you're only getting validation of what you already think, and you're exposing yourself never to opinions that challenge what you think, and that right. creates the circular you know where, where then it doesn't become a big leap to go to 
watch the Mike Lindell movie at the Waukesha Republican Party, you know, event, uh, because you're just, it, it, it's sort of normalized because the, you're listening to six different media sources, but all six of them are telling you the exact same thing and, 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 and uncritically so. Well, and this is also something that you see in the discourse, that there's no longer an attempt to persuade. You know, here's my argument, and I want you to change your mind to join me. Um, now it is just simply, you know, reiterating the points, pounding the points, you know, the, the mad libs of, of various memes and narratives. And so I, and I, I, so I do think that many people on the right have, have, have just sort of given up on persuasion and clearly yeah. people like Limbaugh had near the near the end and a lot of his imitators do as well right i mean does does ben does ben shapiro aim to convert people or does he just you know want to have liberal tears uh you know that I, I i think the latter but you know i remember um i remember listening to Limbaugh in the 90s and yeah. and he would do long segments like making the case for deregulation i remember this about yeah. welfare reform obviously wisconsin mm -hmm. center front center there tommy thompson but the uh that that you know when you whenever i would turn on rush toward the end there was never any of that <laughs> you know that um and i do think a lot of the imitators you know I, I i think it is about it's about trying to trigger people for the sense of triggering them not for the sense of, of persuading them and frankly you know antagonizing people isn't a good way to win converts uh usually ever <laughs> well that's that's right and, and that's you know that that's contributed to the level of the debate just i mean we talk about how intensely how intensely divided we are but also uh the way that debate has been dumbed down so um merrick while you and i are, are speaking here merrick garland is saying the capital attack investigation will be his first priority which uh, I think is uh, is very very encouraging because one of my concerns is that uh, is that Joe Biden will take the rhetoric of unifying and moving on so seriously that we we don't have that moment of reckoning that we so desperately need for what happened uh, on January sixth and the other things that uh, that uh, Trump might have done on the way out the door. I agree. I agree with that, and I think you know there was there was some tension. We had a story in the Post a couple of weeks ago about a divide among prosecutors uh, because there is you know some sense of well, do you really go after everyone, or do you just go after the people who are involved in the conspiracy? And uh, and there there clearly is some divide within uh, you know I prosecutors may be reluctant to bring cases that uh prosecutors never like to bring cases that are that maybe aren't slam dunks uh but I, I think it is important for the country to move forward for there to be accountability and uh and to get to the bottom of of what role roger stone and alex jones and these different groups played and who knew what and when uh so it it is heartening to hear garland say that because I, yeah biden's, biden's tendency is to back down you know biden's tendency biden is the Biden's the kind of leader who, you know, in, in 1974 would have pardoned Richard Nixon, frankly. You think so? Really? I, I do. I think, you know, I think he, 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 he is kind of of an old school, uh, variety. And I don't like his, just his, his inclination, his tendency is to not fight, uh, when, when faced with that choice because he wants to be liked uh, and he, he does, I do think like the unity rhetoric is partly a shtick, it, you know, it's partly mm -hmm. kind of the, it was the right message for the moment to win in 2020 post Trump. Uh, but I, I do think he has this kind of, uh, 
this inclination to be this deal maker and to bring people together. And, and I think there are, there's definitely a, a risk for him that, that, you know, means that, uh, you know, that, that he kind of wastes time and, and doesn't focus on the right things in his agenda because he believes he's going to be able to win widespread support for something that ultimately he's not going to be able to, uh, but we'll see, uh, you know, he, he, it's, but he, he, you know, he has a half century record that would suggest that he doesn't have kind of a, a killer instinct in a political sense. And yet they are pushing the $1.9 trillion stimulus package through, apparently through reconciliation. So he's, he's not slowing up waiting for Susan Collins to come on board. They're not negotiating with, uh, with, with Republicans saying, you know, we're, we're, we will hold until uh, we have the bipartisan majority. And I think that that's a direct result of, of the of feeling burned still from 2009. Uh, yeah, when exactly. Biden was the one who was in the White House, in the Obama White House, pushing them to wait to give Chuck Grassley time to come around on the ACA. Uh, and, yeah. you know, and, and there's this feeling not among Biden as much as like a lot of his aides and longtime, you know, adver- advisors who say, like, d- don't get burned another time. And so that I do think that's that's directly why they were willing to move forward uh, so fast and, and skip over a lot of that process. Okay, we're almost done here, but but since you mentioned 1974 and then the and the Nixon pardon, I've actually been engaging in my own bit of historical revisionism, because when I was a kid, I remember watch. Remember when they made a movie? I mean, a, a TV series out of John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage. I do. I actually, I said that's what a geek I was as a kid, and I remember um, the episode they had about the one senator who cast the vote against uh, against the removal, the conviction of Andrew Johnson. And how he was staring, I think he was from Kansas, and he was staring into his open political grave and how courageous he was to keep Andrew Johnson in office. And, of course, that was the belief that this was a good thing, that we did not remove Andrew Johnson. Now I look back on that and say, Andrew Johnson was one of the worst human beings on earth. (laughs) You know, know, perhaps it would have been a good thing to remove him because then impeachment might have meant something. And then fast forward to 1974, I guess I was among those who thought that the pardon of Richard Nixon was a good thing because it enabled the country to heal yeah. and not have to go through that nightmare. But now you look back on those two events and you realize we created this kind of this tradition or this culture of not holding ex-presidents accountable for their behavior. And I, I, I wonder whether or not these were mistakes that I look back at the pardon of Richard Nixon, I think, less favorably now than I did back then. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you uh, reasonable people can can yeah. disagree on the Nixon pardon. I think that there is a case to be made that you know it would have been a, a, a I mean, a, a nightmare for that to play yeah. out. The former president to be, you know, it, it, we don't want to be a country where former presidents routinely end up behind bars. Um, you know that that's not, not routinely, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but occasionally, <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> Um, you know, I, it is funny because I, I went back and reread that chapter in, in JFK's Profiles in Courage from during the first mm. impeachment trial. And it is it, it really doesn't hold up well. And it is it is funny that, you know, that gave sort of a bad the, the Johnson impeachment gave this bad name to impeachment. Yeah. Uh, which is why we went 100 years, uh, you know, without having one more than 100 years uh, without having a process. Obviously, Nixon wasn't actually impeached, but the articles were um, passed through the committee. And so the. Uh, and it, I, one of the things I do wonder, to, to your point, is like, how is this going to become the new norm? Uh, you know, obviously, we don't want 
a lot of political impeachments. But I would argue, and I know you would agree, that January 6th, you know, that, that that's not a political impeachment. Um, yeah. uh, but I do wonder if that's going to become sort of the norm when any party has a majority in both chambers, you're going to see the president get impeached. You know, and it is, you think back to like Iran-Contra in, you know, that you, you just, you can imagine scenarios where that's going to become easily, easily, you know, the norm. And I'm not sure that's actually a good thing. Yeah, but then we need to have some sort of a mechanism that holds presidents accountable in some way. And because the alternative is a president who is uh, literally above the law. And, that, and that's scary. And I, and I think we, we, push, we push the envelope on that with this president. I mean, one of the things I hope that comes out of the Biden era is, is more of a rebalancing of executive and legislative power. Brought more broadly, this long predates Trump. Trump, I think, hypercharged this trend. But the, the legislative is supposed to be a co-equal branch with the executive. And uh, right now it's it's more of a moot point because the same party controls the executive and the legislative. But I do think for the republic's sake, there needs to be, uh, a, a, the legislative branch needs to assert itself more uh, than it did the last four years. Yeah, I could not agree more. James Homan, uh, thank you for coming back on the podcast. Uh, we really appreciate it. James Homan, a uh, new uh, opinion columnist for the Washington Post, the longtime editor of the Daily 202, which, as I had told you, was always my my daily must read every single day. You did a fantastic job. I still, now that I actually do a daily newsletter, I'm more impressed with what you did than ever before. The fact that you came up with that, it was so substantive. There was so much in that. And every once in a while, I tried to you know print it out, but it was so long, I'd run out of paper. But you did that every single day. And so I, I, I know that you pass it off to good hands, but I'm, I am going to miss you in the Daily 202, but look forward to your columns. Thank you so much, Charlie, and, and really enjoyed our conversation. Fun to be with you. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.